The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The line between church and state seems to be blurring with recent Supreme Court decisions. Where will that line be several years from now? A new book entitled The Religion Clauses, The Case for Separating Church and State, explores that relationship. Joining me is one of the authors, Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of the Berkeley School of Law. Erwin, you've written a whole book on the religion clauses, but can you give us just the basics to start with? Sure. There's two clauses in the First Amendment dealing with religion. One says that Congress can make no law abridging the free exercise of religion. In 1940, the Supreme Court said that applies to state and local governments as well. It demands to protect the ability of people to practice their religion. The other clause says that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. It's usually called the Establishment Clause. And in 1947, the Supreme Court said State and local governments also must comply with this provision. A person might hear that and say, okay, there's a line between church and state, but what about the fact that we pledge allegiance to one nation under God? Our motto, our U.S. motto is in God we trust, and it's on our money. Also, we hear God save this honorable court before Supreme Court sessions. So how do those play into the two religion clauses? There's a variety of different views on the examples you mentioned. There's, there's a variety of different views with regard to everything concerning these clauses. One view would say that this shows that we don't separate church and state in this country, that we accommodate religion into government. And under God and the Pledge of Allegiance, or in God we trust, or God save this honorable court, all reflect the larger point that there's no such thing as a wall separating church and state. That's what conservatives would say. There's then a position that says that these are really what Justice O'Connor called ceremonial deism. They're relatively minor. They're part of our culture. They don't tell us anything larger than that. And then there's the liberal position that says, you know, under God really shouldn't be in the Pledge of Allegiance. We really shouldn't have in God we trust on our money or God save this honorable court. We should have a government that's secular. And these are inconsistent with that, even though they're more symbolic than anything else. When did the Supreme Court begin to blur the line between church and state? We've seen that a lot more recently with the Roberts Court. But when did that begin to happen? In 1947, in Everson versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court said that the Establishment Clause limits what state and local governments can do. And all nine justices in that case said, that the Establishment Clause should be understood in the words of Thomas Jefferson, there should be a wall that separates church and state. And that's what the Supreme Court followed for a few decades. It really began to change in the Burger Court. And the Burger Court was from 1969 to 1986. And essentially in the 1980s, there were some decisions of the Burger Court that were much more permissive of religious presence in government and government support for religion. 
Some of the cases that stand out involving monuments, religious monuments on public lands, and you were involved in one of the cases with the Ten Commandments. Tell us about that case. Sure, the case was Van Orden versus Perry. It was decided by the Supreme Court in 2005. It involves a six-foot-high, three-foot-wide Ten Commandments monument that sits directly at the corner the Texas State Capitol and the Texas Supreme Court. My client, Thomas Van Orden, brought a challenge to that and argued that there shouldn't be a religious symbol at the seat of Texas state government. I lost five to four in the Supreme Court. Four justices took the approach. There's nothing wrong with religious symbols on government property. They don't coerce anyone to be part of religion. Four justices said, religious symbols just don't belong on government property like this, period. And then there was Justice Breyer, who was the fifth vote, and he joined the conservatives, but without agreeing to the reasoning and said, this isn't a symbolic endorsement of religion. He said, this has been there since 1961. No one complained until Thomas Van Orden. It was paid for by Cecil B. DeMille in promoting his movie, The Ten Commandments, not by the state of Texas. Right. So there's lots of other monuments in the Texas state capitol grounds, so this doesn't infringe the Constitution. To this day, there are still these cases involving religious monuments on government land that come before the Supreme Court. Is there a way of knowing how the Supreme Court is going to rule in these cases? There isn't a way of knowing. Until recently, the question for the swing justices was whether a particular display should be seen as a symbolic endorsement of religion. And people would argue about its placement and its history. And if it was seen as an endorsement of religion, it would be a lot. I'll give you an example. There were a couple of cases in the Supreme Court in 1989. One involved a nativity scene that was put in a large stairway display case in a courthouse. The other involved a menorah that was put in front of a city building along with a Christmas tree, and a proclamation about tolerance in the holiday season. The Supreme Court said that the nativity scene was unconstitutional because it was all by itself, all by itself, it was seen as a symbolic endorsement of religion. But the court said the menorah was constitutional because it was with other symbols, a Christmas tree, a proclamation of tolerance. But there was no majority opinion in either of those cases. The court was very fragmented, but that's what came out of it. And so until recently, I would have said the litigation is going to be about should this symbol be seen as an endorsement of a particular religion. Now I think, though, there's five justices on the court who allow any religious symbols on government property. I think the five conservative justices, Roberts, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, believe that the government violates the Establishment Clause only if it coerces religious participation. Religious symbols on government property aren't coercion. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. There are lots of different areas where it seems as if the court is blurring the line or expanding religious liberties. And, you know, a case that stands out 
in this to me is the Hobby Lobby case. So tell us about the Hobby Lobby and what that stands for and what it's led to. It's a decision in 2014, and I should be clear, it was not a decision about the religion clauses of the Constitution that we've been discussing. Instead, it was brought under a federal statute, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act is a federal law that says that if the federal government significantly burdens religion, its action is allowed only if it's necessary to achieve a compelling government purpose. The Patient Protection Affordable Care Act says that employer-provided insurance should include preventative health care coverage. The Obama administration said this means that employer-provided insurance should include contraceptive coverage for women. There's an exception for religious institutions that oppose contraception. So Hobby Lobby, a major corporation, stores in 23 states, would have been required in its health insurance policies to include contraceptive coverage for women. But it objected, it's a family-owned business, and it said it violates our religious beliefs to have to provide contraceptive coverage. And the Supreme Court 5-4 to four agreed with Hobby Lobby and said that at least for family-owned businesses, if they have religious objections to contraception, they don't have to provide that to their women employees. Did the court expand on that this term, or was it a different issue? When the, the court upheld the Trump administration rules, which gave more kinds of employers this broad right to refuse to offer birth control in their health plans. The case was Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania. As you rightly said, the Trump administration said any employer has an objection to contraception, whether based on religion or philosophy, can refuse to provide such coverage for women employees. And the issue before the Supreme Court was a narrow one. Is this regulation consistent with the Affordable Care Act? And the Supreme Court 7 to 2 said it was consistent with the Affordable Care Act, though it left open the question of did it violate the Administrative Procedures Act? But basically, the court said the Trump administration could do it. So you have this idea of the conservative justices versus the liberal justices on religion. But two justices, Elena Kagan and Stephen Breyer, side with the conservatives a lot of the time. Why is it that they are you know, liberal in other respects, but with this, they often side with the conservatives? Yes. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. So, for example, a few years ago, there was a case, Town of Greece versus Galloway, that involved a town in upstate New York that for about 10 years began its town board meeting every month with a very explicit Christian prayer filled by a Christian clergy member. The court five to four said it didn't violate the Establishment Clause, but Justice Kagan wrote a scathing dissent joined by Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor. There was the case this term... Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. It involved a Montana law that allowed parents to get a tax credit. They had money to a private school tuition organization. The Montana Supreme Court said it violated the Montana Constitution because the Montana Constitution doesn't allow direct or indirect aid to religion. The Supreme Court 5-4 to four reversed the Montana Supreme Court. The court 5-4 to four said the government can't deny benefits to religious institutions that gives the secular ones. But Breyer and Kagan joined with Ginsburg and Sotomayor is the dissent. 
But sometimes you're right. They're with the conservatives. A year ago, there was a case, American Legion versus American Human Association, that involves a 45-foot cross on public property at a busy intersection in Prince George County, Maryland. And the Supreme Court, 7-2, said it didn't violate the Establishment Clause. Kagan and Breyer were with the conservatives. Or this term, there was a case, Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Baru. It involved whether a Catholic school could fire lay teachers based on disability, based on age. Seven to two, the Supreme Court said that religious schools can do that. Kagan and Breyer joined the conservatives. Once more, Ginsburg and Sotomayor were the dissents. How far has it gotten from the idea that there shouldn't be government aid to religious institutions? I mean, how far have they blurred the line? Well, not only have they blurred the line, they're now saying the government is required to give aid to religious schools when it gives that aid to secular schools. For decades, the litigation was about, as your question implies, when may the government give aid to religious schools if it chooses to do so? without violating the Establishment Clause. Based on the Espinoza case I mentioned and another from three years ago, I think the Supreme Court is saying whenever the government gives aid to private secular schools, it must give that aid to religious schools unless doing so would violate the Establishment Clause. But very little violates the Establishment Clause for these justices. A case that got a lot of attention years ago, in fact, most people knew the name of it, was Masterpiece Cake Shop. Sure. That was years ago. Do we now know, according to the Supreme Court, whether a business owner can refuse to serve clients because of religious objections to same-sex marriage? We don't know. Masterpiece Cake Shop was a couple of years ago, and it involved a gay couple that asked a bakery to design and bake a cake to celebrate their wedding. And the owner of the bakery, Masterpiece Cake Shop, refused. They brought an action to the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, which ruled against the bakery. The Colorado Court of Appeals affirmed. And everyone thought the Supreme Court was going to deal with this underlying issue. How do we balance the freedom to practice one's religion against the desire for equality and stop discrimination against gays and lesbians? The court didn't resolve that issue. There's a case before the Supreme Court coming up, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, that involves whether Philadelphia can refuse to contract with the Catholic Social Services to place foster children because Catholic Social Services won't do so with gay and lesbian foster parents. That's the same underlying issue. And there's lots of lower court cases that involve things like can a photographer or a videographer refuse to take pictures at a same-sex wedding? Can a florist refuse to make floral arrangements for a same-sex wedding? Can a stationery store refuse to engrave invitations for a same-sex wedding? And they're all about the same issue. How do we balance the freedom that's claimed to practice one religion versus the quality concern but stopping discrimination? Instead of uh, talking about a line between church and state, let's talk about a wall between church and state. So if you look at the jurisprudence today, is there a wall? Has the wall been knocked down? I think the conservatives on the court don't believe that there should be a wall that separates church and state. So I guess if I had to put it in terms of the metaphor, I think they're obliterating the wall that separates church and state. 
beginning with the conservatives in the 1980s, who I alluded to, they took the view that the government violates the Establishment Clause only if it coerces religious participation. Nothing else violates the Establishment Clause. And so from their perspective, religious symbols on government property don't violate the Establishment Clause. They don't coerce religious participation. Government aid to parochial schools, so long as it doesn't coerce religious participation, is fine. And, um, religious presence in government activities, like prayer at town board meetings, doesn't coerce religious participation. Now, two justices, Thomas and Gorsuch, have indicated they'd go even further. Justice Thomas has repeatedly said that he doesn't believe the Establishment Clause applies to state and local governments at all. Justice Thomas says the Establishment Clause was just meant to keep Congress from creating a national church to rival the state churches that existed at the time. So for Thomas, and now Gorsuch has joined him, there could be a state that declares an official religion, a state could require prayer in public schools, a state could require anything with regard to religion, and it wouldn't violate the Constitution from their perspective because it doesn't apply to state and local governments at all. And tell us about the theory that you've expressed in your book. Our view is that there should be a wall that separates church and state. The metaphor of a wall separating church and state wasn't invented by liberal law professors. It was Thomas Jefferson who said so long ago. And we believe that that government should be secular, that the place for religion should be in people's lives to the extent they want it to be there. Thanks, Erwin. That's Erwin Chemerinsky, dean of the Berkeley Law School. His book is The Religion Clauses, The Case for Separating Church and State. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.